about the rule and reign of God or the exercise of God's authority. So where there is a king, there is a kingdom because kings exercise their authority. And Jesus' view is a little tricky, and we spent some time trying to walk through that um, picture. And it is a bit confusing, but it's really important for us if we're going to follow Jesus for long. So Jesus, when he talks about his kingdom and the arrival of the king, he goes back and forth between the first and the second. The first coming of the king, that was Christmas 2,000 years ago. We just celebrated that. Inconspicuous, subtle, easy to miss. Jesus comes as a savior. He throws open the door and says, anybody who wants to respond to me can. And again, because everywhere there's a king, there's a kingdom. When Jesus was born and when he lived and when he did ministry for three years, he introduced the kingdom of heaven or the rule of God onto the earth. And we, but it, it was partial, not complete. And then Jesus at times looks forward to his second coming. We read about that in Revelation. That's the white horse and all of those things where Jesus comes back as a judge. And that, that coming will be unmistakable. He says it's like lightning in the sky. You can't miss it. You don't need anybody to tell you if it's, that it happened because everybody's going to know. And he says that and the, the second coming of his kingdom or the arrival of his kingdom will be complete and final. And so we live in this weird in-between time. There's tension for us. We can experience the benefits of the kingdom of God. So we can experience joy and forgiveness and peace and healing and victory. And we also experience the consequences of the fall. Sickness, death, disappointment, pain. And, and all of those things are mixed up in our life. And that's where we live, and there's tension there, and it's not going to be eased until Jesus returns or until you die. That's where we live, and we've got to figure out how do we maintain faithfulness in the midst of that. How do I continue to trust God to work and to move, to bring these benefits of his kingdom into to bear on my life? And how do I also live with the reality that it's not going to work out every time? And at times it looks like the good guys are going to lose. And so that, that is where we live. We have this uh, natural tendency to try to resolve tension, and I'm going to encourage you to not do that. So Jesus, when he talks about this second coming, he says it's going to be unmistakable, but it's also going to be unexpected. By the time you see him, it will be too late to respond. You can't read the tea leaves. You can't predict the signs. He comes like a thief in the night, is what Peter says, I think, in Second Peter. And so you've got to be ready because by the time you see him, it's too late to respond. So what does it look like to get ready? And Jesus says, you want to be the kind of person who's always praying for my kingdom to come. And you want to be the kind of person who doesn't give up, even when you have to wait for a really long time or you get disappointed. So that was last week and very important for us. I think one of, to me, one of the two or three most fundamental aspects of our Christian life is how do I live in between, How do I live with the kingdom already coming and not yet fully here? Between the first and second comings of Jesus, how am I supposed to live in the midst of that? I think it's probably one of the most, again, fundamental things for us. I'd encourage you um, to press into that in your own life. What does it look like for you to continue to believe God, to do work, to be active, to make things happen, to change, and also recognizing it's not always going to work out the way you think it should, or even the way we know it should, because we still have to deal with the consequences of the fall. So today we're going to look at three stories, one parable, and then two encounters. The parable helps us understand the encounters, and, it's, and the, the theme there is how do we enter the kingdom of God, or how do we inherit eternal life, or how are we saved? Those are different ways of saying the same thing. So Jesus has said, you got to get ready because I'm coming back. 
And now we're going to look at, well, what do we do now? What, how do we say yes to Jesus right now? So we're going to start with this parable, verse 9, chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, that's nobody in this room, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Have you ever prayed that? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Or this man, rather than the other, was declared righteous by God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, the first hearers, remember Jesus has got a huge crowd. Thousands of people are following him. He's only got a couple of weeks of his life left, and so he's hitting these major topics before he dies. And in this crowd, it's a mixed crowd, some people who love him and some people who hate him, and a lot of people in between. And so he addresses all of the crowd, and he said, this is for everybody who feels, who's confident in their own righteousness, everybody who looks down on other people. There are two guys walking to the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. For us, two guys walk into a sanctuary, a pastor and a loan shark. And when you hear that, I hope you're thinking, oh, the pastor is going to be the good example and the loan shark is going to be the bad example. They hear the Pharisee is going to be the good example and the tax collector is going to be the negative example. Pharisees in general, they were respected, they were righteous, they were ethical. It was a, it was a good profession. Tax collectors, on the other hand, despised, greedy, and deceitful. So the assumption is Jesus is going to lift up the Pharisee be like this. He's going to put down the tax collector. Don't be like this. And we see the Pharisee first. He stands up at the front of the sanctuary. Standing was the normal posture of prayer. There's nothing to be read into that. So he stands at the front. And he starts off, God, I thank you. That's good. But then you read the content of his prayer. He never thanks God for anything about God. He thanks God for a whole lot of things about the Pharisee. I thank you that I'm not like all of these other wicked people. Even like that guy standing in the back. I thank you. I tithe twice a week. I mean, excuse me, I fast twice a week. Old Testament says you fast once a year. These guys went above and beyond every Monday and Wednesday. I tithe on all I get. I don't just tithe on what I grow in my own garden. When I go and buy food from the market, I tithe on that as well. I give 10% of what I buy at the market away because I don't know if the guy that grew it tithed on it. And so I don't want to eat something that hasn't been tithed on above and beyond. The Pharisee's confident of his own righteousness. And he has every reason to be confident of his own righteousness. He's really, really, really good at keeping the law. He's very faithful, not just to the letter, but even goes beyond that, above and beyond. And then we have the tax collector who's way in the back. And he won't even look up. And he's beating himself in the chest. And he doesn't bring anything to the table. He just says, have mercy on me. And so when we hear that, we're thinking, yeah, that's about right. Tax collectors are despicable, and that's probably where they should be, and Pharisees are super righteous, and maybe that's where they should be. And then there's a twist in the story. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified or was declared righteous. Now, that's a shock. If I'm a Jew, I'm declared righteous by birth and behavior. I'm righteous because I'm a Jew and because I follow the law. That is the Pharisee. 
How is he not declared righteous? The first audience would be asking. The tax collector is declared righteous. How? He's a, he's a scumball. How in the world is he declared righteous? Everything about his profession is wicked. He cheats people. He bribes people. He gives money to this pagan government. How, how can you say he's made righteous? And then Jesus gives the punchline. Here's how. I'm grading on a different scale. This is the key statement for us. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's my expansion of that underneath. The one who exalts himself before God by standing on his behavior will be humbled by God by being declared unrighteous. The one who humbles himself before God by asking for mercy will be exalted by God by being declared righteous. So sometimes when we hear that phrase, that God exalts the humble and humbles the exhausted, we think about not bragging. Bragging to other people, that makes you a jerk. But exalting yourself before God makes you dead. It's very different. The object is God, not other people. So this is not about your resume before other people. This is not about you, um, what, what you share with other people about your accomplishments. That's a whole, that's a whole other topic. This is about my standing before God. The Pharisee stands before God and says, I'm a number one draft pick. Look at all of the things that I've done. I thank you that I'm so awesome. That's what he's saying. That is what God, that's what Jesus is saying gets you humbled. It's not telling your friends that you, you know, something, uh, you did something great at work. That's not, it's not the same thing at all. This is standing before God and saying, I am awesome because I'm so good at fill in the blank. None of us do that consciously or intentionally. We all know better. But that runs un, that current runs under our hearts in some ways. What can I contribute? What do I have to give? What do I have to offer? The tax collector's on the other side. He knows I've got nothing to commend myself before the Lord. So all I can do is ask for mercy. Jesus, it's a different scale. The scale is not birth and behavior. The scale is humility and pride. The scale is a recognition of need. What this does for us, some people have an issue with Christianity because it's exclusive. There's only one way to heaven, and that's stingy, and God is mean, and he doesn't want people to enter into the kingdom. What I would say is, far from that, the fact that there is one way, and it's narrow, it's one man's, it's the width of one man, Jesus, but he's removed the bar. He said anybody can come. Any language, any culture, any time, any country. All you have to do is acknowledge your need. What he's done is he's removed all the external barriers that would keep people from responding to him. And said this is, this is, this is a universal uh, requirement. Do you need me? Yes or no? What we just sang. Do you, he, he answers that prayer all day long. Lord, I need you. He's the, he, he responds. To that. That's what this tax collector gets. Verse 15. This is a positive example. So this is someone who responds well to Jesus. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never Enter it. So, babies, super vulnerable, really high infant mortality rate. 
mamas are bringing their babies to Jesus, pray for protection and blessing. The disciples are saying, don't, no, like we don't have time for that. We're on a mission. We're headed to Jerusalem. There's some good stuff's going to happen. We don't have time for these babies. And Jesus says, time out. The kingdom of heaven belongs to ones like this, not necessarily to them, but to ones like that. And then he gives our key statement in this passage. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Anyone, he's speaking to a group of adults, anyone who won't receive the kingdom of God like one of these little babies, one of these toddlers, they won't enter it. Well, what do we do with that? What does it look like to receive the kingdom like a little child? So how do children receive? So I have very little conviction on parenting. I feel like it's a very personal thing. One thing I do feel pretty deeply, don't feed your children baby food. It's cruel. If you want to know what they eat in hell, you walk down the baby food aisle and you start pulling those jars. Peas and carrots all mushed up like that. Don't do it to your kids. (laughs) Public service announcement. So how do toddlers receive? Now listen, children were not idolized and they were not idealized in Jesus' day like they are for us. We think, you know, we do that to children. And we talk about childlike innocence and this innate goodness. Children are born selfish. They're not born good. You know that. It's true. Jesus is not referring to any of that. When he says receive like a child, how do children receive? Think baby, think toddler. I think the answer is fully, completely. They recognize, not not cognitively, but instinctively, they realize I have an issue and I can't solve it. And so I'm going to cry until somebody fixes it for me. That's all they know to do. They bring nothing to the table as little babies and toddlers. All they are is another mouth. For you to feed. More work for you to do. They don't contribute to the meeting of their own needs. They recognize, again, it's not cognitive, it's instinctual. They recognize if whatever this thing is, I'm, I'm hungry or I'm tired or whatever. Think about that. Babies sometimes can't even go to sleep on their own. Is there anything easier than falling asleep? You have to help them with that. They are completely dependent upon their parents to meet every one of their needs. If their parents are gone for any length of time, they're done. Very vulnerable. So when Jesus says, receive the kingdom like a little child, what he's saying is recognize your need. Realize you are completely dependent upon the grace and mercy of God in order to enter into this relationship. I'm a huge believer in responsibility, a huge believer in obedience, a huge believer in the fact that God has created good works for each one of us to do. And all of that comes after this initial adoption into his family. Recognizing this initial adoption, it's 100% an act of his grace and his mercy in our life. It's me saying, I got nothing to offer. I have nothing to commend myself to you. Far from being a first-round draft pick... I don't even deserve to get off the bench. And he says, that's great. That's what I'm looking for is that that recognition of need, that willingness to say, I'm going to fully receive everything that you're going to give to me. Verse 18, this is a negative example. So this is a sad, really, really sad story. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Let me pause there. Some people get hung up on that. Don't. Um, If I give you a compliment, most likely you're going to give me one back. That's just kind of social convention. And Jesus is just cutting that off. This guy says, good teacher. The expectation is Jesus would then say something complimentary back towards him. That would be most likely based on his behavior. That's what we tend to compliment people on. And Jesus is cutting that off and saying, that's not what we're talking about here. He's trying to steer this guy uh, deeper than his behavior. And so engaging in that type of back and forth just isn't helpful. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. Now notice Jesus doesn't seem to challenge that. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. Truly I say to you, Jesus said to them, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will fail to receive many times as much as in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So again, it's a really sad story. We have this guy who I think is sincere. This story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, putting them together. We know he's a rich, young ruler. Most likely he's a ruler of the synagogue, which means he's a very righteous and holy man. And I think with all sincerity, he approaches Jesus. He knows this guy can, there's something about him. He can answer my question. How do I inherit eternal life? How do I enter into the kingdom of God? How am I saved? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. And the guy says, I've kept them. And again, Jesus doesn't challenge him. So the assumption is, yeah, he has been keeping those commandments since he was old enough to know to do that, whatever that age is, 12, 13 years old. He has been keeping the commandments. And then Jesus says, all right, there's only one thing that you're missing. Sell all your stuff and follow me. Two aspects of the same command. Sell everything. Get rid of the hindrances, the things that are holding you back, and that way you can enter into this relationship with me and be one of my disciples. And the guy walks away sad because he has great wealth. He walks away sad because he has great wealth. And our key statement in this passage, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, or with much difficulty will the rich enter the kingdom of God. That's a key statement for us in this. And the disciples are going, and then Jesus says, listen, camel, that's the biggest thing that we know. Eye of a needle, eye of a needle, that's the smallest opening we've got. It's easier for that big thing to go through that little bitty opening than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are going, what, then who can be saved? Wealth is a sign of blessing. From God, If these people who are rich, and in my mind that means favored by God, if they can't be saved, then who's got a shot at this? Time out. Calm down. With God, it's possible. Not with, with men, it's impossible. With God, he can, he can do this. He can so separate somebody, their heart, from their possessions that they can say yes to him. And then you see Peter kind of saying, hey, we left everything. Don't forget about us. And Jesus says, that's good. Yes, and you're going to receive back everything that you've given. You're going to get back multiplied. You're not going to outgive God. And the things that he gives back to you are so much more than the things that you give to follow him. So for us, that question 
why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of, of heaven? Why is, that a, why is it difficult for them? Money is, is morally neutral. It's a tool. It's a thing. So why does having more of it make it more difficult for somebody to inherit eternal life, for somebody to enter into the kingdom of God? The New Testament has tons to say about money. That love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's in 1 Timothy 6. So that's really talking about the pursuit of money. The rich man, that's not him. He's already got it. Jesus talks about only being able to serve one master and where our treasure is, our heart is. All of those things are true, and those are ways that money can pollute our heart. But I think fundamentally what Jesus is referring to here when he says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, I think what he's saying is when you're rich, it's really easy to trust in your money. And if you're trusting in your money, then you're not trusting in Jesus. Really easy to trust in your money. It says, here's who you are. Let me give you some identity. Here's what you're worth. Let me give you some value. I can meet your needs. Let me give you some security. All of those are things that God says he wants to do. And so when when they come to this point, Jesus looks at this man. Mark says he loves him. He's not trying to push this man away. He's trying to draw him in. When Jesus looks at him and says, there's only one thing you're missing. You've got to be able to trust me completely. In order for you to trust me completely, you've got to get rid of all this other stuff. And in that moment, he says, I'm, I'm out. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we read anybody is told to sell everything so you can breathe easy. Most likely, Jesus is not asking you to sell everything. But what he is saying is, the more you have, the easier it is to trust that stuff. And when you're trusting that stuff, You can't follow me. The Pharisee was trusting in his own righteousness. The rich man was trusting in his own wealth. They're they're parallels. They're both coming to God with something. And Jesus, you can't do that. So you've got to get rid of all this stuff, and that will put you in a position to depend fully and completely on me, like this little baby, like this tax collector. You see that. So what does a tax collector and a baby have in common? What does a loan shark have in common with a toddler? They both recognize their need. In our story, the tax collector realizes, I don't even deserve to be in the room. God, you've got to have mercy on me. We know for babies, again, it's not cognitive, but instinctually, they know if somebody doesn't take care of me, I'm done. They both recognize their need and they are willing to allow someone else to meet it. That's humility. There are other shades of humility. The idea of not bragging, there's humility. That is an understanding of humility for sure. But so is is dependence. I think that's what God is picking up on here. I think that's what Jesus is focusing on. When he says, whoever humbles himself, I don't think he means whoever doesn't brag about themselves to other people. I think he says, whoever recognizes their need and is willing to say, God, I need you to meet this need in my life. And I realize I can't pay you back. Many of you know we paid rent for our neighbors over the course of, for January. And this is because of y'all. Y'all gave a ton of money for Christmas Eve that allowed us to do that. And it's very interesting interacting with people around their responses. I've gotten way more hugs than I ever would have wanted, for sure. <laughs> Some from men, which is even worse. The, side note, for people like me who don't like hugs, the worst thing you can do is when I shake your hand is for you to pull me in. That is a bait and switch. And when I pat you on the back, it doesn't mean I love you. It means let me go. So we're getting those things. People don't, that, like, we get that. And we have people who say, 
can I give some money back to the church? And we say, no, you can't give us anything. We don't want it. There's that part of us that says, if, if you're doing something for me, I've got to pay it back somehow. To, to enter into the kingdom, we've got to wreck. I can't pay it back at all. I don't have anything to give. I don't have anything to offer. And that's what it looks like to receive the kingdom like a little child. What does a Pharisee and a rich young person have in common? It's super easy for them to trust in themselves. Self-sufficiency, Bo said that earlier. It's very easy to be self-sufficient when you have a lot of something. When you have a lot of righteous deeds, it's easy to stand on those. When you have a lot of wealth, it's easy to trust in it. If you have a lot of connections, it's easy to lean on your network. If you have a lot of intelligence, it's easy to lean on your brains. You get that. It's easy to trust in something when you have a lot of it. And that self-sufficiency makes it very difficult to enter into the kingdom of heaven because you've got to recognize, I can't, that's not why he's responding to you. Everybody else you know responds to you because of your great behavior or because of your big bank account or because of your winning personality, whatever those things are. Everybody else responds to you because of those things. I doesn't do anything for him. He doesn't respond to you because of any of that stuff. He responds to you because you say, I need you. I need you. So what does that mean for us? Most of us are more Pharisee than loan shark, and that's good. I don't want you to act like a loan shark. Most of us are, like, we're pretty good people. And so what does that mean for us? None of us in this room are babies. We're all adults. And every one of us is rich. We've talked about that before. Go to globalrichlist.com. Type in your income. You're in the top 1%. You kids that get allowance, you're not. Everybody else, we're in the top 1%. We're rich by any global or historical standard. So what does it mean for us? If it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven and we're all rich, if we've got to become like babies and we're all adults, if it's we're more Pharisee than tax collector, what are we supposed to do? A couple of things for you to think about as we close. When it comes to behavior, we all tend, I think, we tend to look down. We look at all the, we're like the Pharisee. We look at all the people who are worse than us. Who does he compare himself to? Adulterers and evildoers. That's, it's not a high standard. That's like us when we say, well, it's not like I killed anybody. Good. It's great. That's not the standard. That's, it's not. We tend to look down when it comes to behavior. Encourage you to look up at Jesus. He's the standard. Be perfect as your father's perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Be holy. 1 Peter 1, 17, as your God in heaven is holy. That's the standard for us. That, that will help you uh, recognize your need. I forgot to read this verse. This is uh, Revelation three seventeen. It's really good for what we're talking about. Can you go back to that, Doug? Perfect. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Money, or I would say wealth in general, whatever we have a lot of, it can blind us to our true condition. And this is talking about material wealth specifically. And what you would say is, well, I'm not wretched and poor and blind and naked. I'm rich and I've got nice clothes and I'm well taken care of. And it masks our true spiritual condition. And the same thing can happen with our righteous deeds. It can mask our true spiritual condition. When I compare myself to other people, especially if I'm going to tend to compare myself to people who are not doing as well as me, if I'm going to compare myself to people who actually have killed somebody 
well, of course I'm going to come out like roses every time. And that's going to make me think, well, I don't really have a strong need for the grace and mercy of God. I'm pretty good. I'm in the top whatever percent for behavior, for, uh, for knowing the Bible, for faithfulness to God, whatever that is. If I'm going to compare myself kind of down the line, then I'm always going to come up smelling like roses. And that's going to make it difficult for me to recognize my need. My wealth of good deeds masks my true condition before the Lord. And the same thing can be true with money. When it comes to money, we tend to look up. And so wherever I am on the ladder, I'm going to decide I'm middle class. I'm going to look up at people who have more than me and say they're rich, not me. And so I'm, I exclude myself from this whole thing about it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It's hard for those guys. And what Jesus wants to say is, no, you're, you're, you're those guys. You're in, the, you're in the, the, the group as well. And so I would encourage you. It's like AA, step one, admit you have a problem. Say you are rich. Be, I don't care what is in your bank account. I don't care how much debt you're carrying. I don't care what's in your savings. You decide you're rich. Again, by any global or any historical standard, everyone in this room is rich. If you have more than one pair of shoes, then you're rich. So own that and then begin to say, all right, God, what do you want me to do with it? I'm rich. So where is it, how is that making it difficult for me to enter the kingdom? So rather than looking down when it comes to behavior, look up at Jesus. He's the standard. That reveals my need. I'm not there yet. I haven't killed anybody. I've called 74 people idiots in the last week. And he says in Matthew, that's just like killing somebody, calling somebody a fool. I've done that a lot. I've never committed adultery. But he says, if you look at a woman lustfully, well, guess what? Same boat. So be willing, rather than looking down, look up when it comes to behavior. That opens up the gap where I say, I need the grace and mercy of God. When it comes to wealth, look down. Say, I'm rich. So my wealth can be a hindrance to me entering the kingdom of God. What do you want me to do with this? I hope it's not sell everything. What do you want me to do with this? Let's pray. I want you to follow with me if you're willing. And I'm just going to ask you just to assume in two cases. We're going to do two prayers. The first is about our behavior. And I want you to assume that you're a Pharisee. You may not be. But I want you to assume that you are confident in your own self-righteousness and that you tend to compare yourselves to others. So with that mindset, let's just pray this prayer. God, I pray this room full of Pharisees, I pray you'd speak to each one of us. Show each one of us where we're prone to trusting in our own righteousness and where we're prone to comparing ourselves to others in a way that makes us come out on top. God may have put a picture in your mind. You may have had a thought that kind of raced through your mind. It may have been something that you know you struggle with. It may have been brand new to you. Just grab onto that. And you may not have had anything, and you don't need to feel that's okay. That was a chance for God to convict you. And if he didn't, then then you're okay for right now, for today. There was nothing he wanted to say to you about that subject.
But if God did put something in your heart or your mind, he wants you to do something about that, and that's repent. God, I confess that I'm prone to fill in the blank. And I repent. And I'm saying to you, God, I need you in this area. I'm not as good as I think I am. Or I need you in this area. I'm so prone to trusting in my goodness, my whatever that is. I look around and think, God, I deserve because of my faithfulness to you. And I'm asking you, give me grace not to look at others and compare my behavior to theirs, but to look at your son and compare my behavior to his. And not just my behavior, but my heart. That's not a crushing thing. That's just to remind me of my need for you, for your grace and for your mercy. There's freedom in being dependent on others. In some senses, you may say, well, a baby has no freedom. In another sense, I would say they've got tons. They don't worry about anything. They get to just be. There's freedom and dependence if you can trust someone to meet your needs. Second area, assume you're rich. I want you to think about your checking account. I just want you to assume you're rich. God, show me where it's hard for me to enter the kingdom, where it's hard for me to trust you because I'm leaning on my wealth. Again, something may have flashed through your mind, some stereotypical answers. Sometimes it's uh, we don't trust the Lord with our health or with the health of our Loved ones, we can lean on our wealth there. We can get the best medical care, which doesn't mean that you don't do that. But it's where's, where's your hope? We can do that sometimes with our safety. We can afford to put ourselves in positions where we're protected. We feel like, I'm not telling you to sleep with the doors unlocked, but where, where, what are you trusting in for your protection and the protection of your family? There may be other things. Some of you own your own business. This may be a real issue. You're making decisions out of fear of losing something, trying to hold on to and protect. Again, I'm not counseling recklessness, but saying, is that hindering you from trusting the Lord in your business? So, God, I confess that in this area, fill in the blank. It's easy for me to lean on my wealth. It makes it that makes it hard for me to trust you. And so I, I repent. And I'm asking, show me. I don't want to sell everything. I don't. But I do want to follow. And so if that's what it takes, then lead me in that. Show me. How do I be faithful with what you've given to me? How do I use my money as a tool to serve others, bless others, and glorify you? What do you want me to do? God, my prayer for everyone in this room is that we would all live in the freedom of knowing our neediness before you. Not 
groveling, but recognizing the reality of the fact that we bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to this relationship. There's nothing to commend ourselves to you. And yet you say, come on, I pick you. I choose you. I want you. God, I pray for any who are far this morning that they would hear you saying that to them. I want you. And all of our responses be, God, I need you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with ministry. We'll have prayer teams up here in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. But I would say specifically, if you have an area of need, well, let us pray with you about that, that God would meet that need. I don't have a lot of specific bullet points because it's very individual how God will speak to you about whatever this area where you're self-righteous is or what you need to do um, with your money. I would say this. If you're married and you feel like money is an issue, don't do anything Radical without your spouse's sign-off, or else I'll have a line out my door this week. So don't do that. God will put both of y'all on the same page with what to do with y'all's with y'all's money. So you guys can stand, and we'll close with this song. Ministry teams, if you guys can come forward.